This is a podcast from the archives of the BBC Ruth Lectures. This lecture in the series The Persistence of Faith, given by Jonathan Sachs, was originally broadcast in 1990. For some reason, religious conviction in the modern world produces in us a mixture of surprise, fascination and fright, as if a dinosaur had come to life and lumbered uninvited into a cocktail party. I remember three years ago taking part in a panel on the use of bad language in broadcasting. Everyone else addressed the subject of obscenity. I was asked to speak about blasphemy. No one had given blasphemy much thought for many years. The one exception, Mary Whitehouse's prosecution of gay news, seemed to be just that, a stray pebble tossed into a sea of calm indifference. At the time, I quoted T.S. Eliot, who believed that blasphemy was no longer possible. He thought that you can only blaspheme if you profoundly believe in the reality of that which you profane. No one, according to Eliot, believed that strongly any more. Along with faith, blasphemy too had died. Few of us could have imagined that within a few months the satanic verses would make blasphemy front-page news throughout the world and that 18 people would die in religious protests about a novel. Here was religious belief very much alive in the way the Bible had once portrayed the presence of God, a whirlwind shattering rocks and uprooting the cedars of Lebanon fascinating in its power, terrifying in its destructiveness. It was the hurricane our weather forecasters failed to predict. Why did the resurgence of religion take us by surprise, and how shall we react to it? We lamented the loss of faith. Shall we fear its rediscovery still more? One picture dominated our understanding of religion in the modern world. Faith was being ousted from one room after another of its once stately home. Science investigated nature, history explored the past, businesses maximized profits, technology increased control, and governments mediated conflicts, all outside the sacred canopy of faith. Religions might still be true, but they'd lost what Peter Berger called their plausibility structure, their objective embodiment in society. Faith might remain a private consolation, but it could hardly govern the public domain. The priest, guardian of the sacred, was left stranded, the last amateur in a world of professionals, the last practitioner of the unquantifiable. For healing, we'd prefer a doctor. For catharsis, a psychotherapist. Welfare and education had been transferred to the state. And prayer had become what one churchman recently described as a list of ultimatums given to God when all other avenues had been exhausted. The human imagination would still need the narratives that explained ourselves to ourselves, but art and drama long ago declared their independence from religion. Wherever the man of God turned, he found someone else already doing his job. Religion was the ineffable, become 
the unemployable. None of this meant that the great religions were about to be eclipsed, but it meant that some hard bargaining would have to take place. Faith no longer had its mansion. Could it negotiate for itself at least a modest apartment in the Tower of Babel? And if so, which of its now cumbersome furniture would it have to throw away? So began the varied strategies of religious liberalism and modern orthodoxy. Religion would concede the loss of its empire. It would grant independence to the vast domains of knowledge and decision where once it had been the colonial power. But it would reserve some restricted territory for itself as a mode of experience or the voice of conscience or a spring to social action or as some immediate self-contained even mystical way of knowing. The very powerlessness of religion might be its salvation. In Hamlet's words, it could be bounded in a nutshell and still count itself king of infinite space. We can hardly understand religious reactions to modernity without appreciating the extent to which scientific rationalism seemed to carry all before it. From Hume and Voltaire onward, religious belief became a subject of ridicule and disdain. It was primitive, irrational, an opiate, a neurosis, an illusion for those who couldn't face reality. Some form of accommodation seemed necessary, the only way to recover self-respect. Modernity had won the battle, and religion had to salvage what it could from defeat. Here and there, there might be groups still untouched by the process, rural communities, the American Bible Belt, the Jewish townships of Eastern Europe. Some might even opt out of it altogether, like the Hasidim, the Jewish mystical circles of Eastern Europe. But that meant strict withdrawal, enclosed communities, and a sectarian form of religious organization. There might be occasional revivals, as there were in Victorian Britain and periodically in America. But these were no more than lingering pools left by the outgoing tide. Churches and synagogues had either to make their peace with secular values, as they did in America, or lose adherence, as they did in England. Either way, religion had lost its power to shape societies. It had become the sacred facade of an increasingly secular social order. By the close of the 19th century, Oscar Wilde was already calling religion the fashionable substitute for belief. Preachers were left to lament the melancholy, long-withdrawing roar of the retreating sea of faith. Even the unexpected appearance among students in the 1960s of mysticisms, cults and countercultural movements was no more than a minor parenthesis in the larger proposition. But it was just then that observers began to detect something else. In 1965, Charles Liebman published an article on orthodoxy in American Jewish life. Until then, it had been assumed that Jewish orthodoxy was in a state of terminal decline. 
As Jews arrived in America, they set foot on the escalator of acculturation and left their religious baggage behind. The second and third generations joined progressively more liberal congregations if they identified religiously at all. Now, for the first time, Liebman's article drew a different picture. Far from being ready to expire, orthodoxy was the only remaining vestige of Jewish passion in America and the only group which today contains within it a strength and will to live that may yet nourish all the Jewish world. A few years later, Dean Kelly produced a strikingly parallel analysis of American Christianity. Documenting the growth and decline of various denominations, he found that those that were prospering were groups like the Southern Baptists, Pentecostalists, Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. It seemed as if a large-scale cultural conversion was taking shape, a turning of the tide. Secularized Christians were being born again. Assimilated Jews were taking the path of religious return. A more considered analysis showed that this wasn't quite so. Those who crossed denominational boundaries were highly visible but numerically few. A society-wide revival wasn't in the making. The millennium wasn't yet in sight. But what was happening was significant nonetheless. Those whose faith was most demanding had larger families, and they gave their children a strong religious education. They had low rates of attrition, and were effectively raising a new generation who shared their values. Against the denominational drift, they were holding their own, and demography was in their favor. In an open society, the strongest religious commitments were those best fitted to survive. And this gave confidence to once demoralized traditional voices. In the backlash against the chaos of the 60s, their convictions rang out clearly. They knew what they believed, and their opinions had none of the complicating subordinate clauses of the religious liberals. They spoke with that rarest of modern accents, authority. They'd learned the lessons of modern communication and organization. Conservative and evangelical groups became the most enthusiastic users of radio, television and mass mailing. In America, the moral majority became a significant force of political pressure. And from these long-neglected circles came the unmistakable sounds of triumph. By the end of the 1970s, they could claim that they'd now acquired the influence long yielded by liberals. It was a matter less of numbers than of mood. But it was a significant turn and raised serious questions about the picture of religion in the modern world. Modernism, liberalism and rationalism no longer looked invincible. Going with the secular flow had ceased to be the best strategy. Why did it happen? We can speak only in the broadest of terms, but we can surely say this. Our image of religion these past two centuries has been part of a larger picture. 
It's reflected in the key words that came to dominate social thought in the 19th century. Civilization, progress, evolution, even the word modern itself as a term of praise. These words testify to the profound future orientation of modern culture. The new is an improvement on the old. Optimism and anti-traditionalism go hand in hand. It was a compelling scenario. Science would fathom the mysteries of nature and technology would harvest its treasures. Reason would replace superstition and tolerance would triumph over prejudice. The modern state would bring participation and equality. The individual would have liberty of choice, freed from paternalist authority. So long as modernity delivered its promises, the voices of lamentation could be ignored. But at some stage in the 1960s, profound doubts began to be expressed. Technology had given us the power to destroy life on Earth. Economic growth was consuming the environment. The modern state had the power to organize tyranny and violence on a scale hitherto unknown. Racial animosities hadn't disappeared. They'd fired the ovens of Auschwitz. No utopia had yet been brought by revolution, and the free market was increasing inequalities between rich and poor. In the secular city, there was homelessness and violence. And individualism had made the most basic relationships vulnerable. Robert Bella caught the mood when he said, Progress, modernity's master idea, seems less compelling when it appears that it may be progress into the abyss. No one was so well prepared for these doubts as those long disattended conservative religious leaders. They developed a deep pessimism about modern culture. They'd preached against its excesses and idolatries, and now they could say, we told you so. They spoke directly to modern discontents. Against the fragmentation of knowledge, they could offer wholeness of vision. Against an overreaching civilization, they spoke a coherent language of restraint. Marx and Freud had called religion an illusion. But now religion could reply that it had rejected the greatest illusion of modern times, the self-perfectibility of man. Precisely those religious movements that seemed to have been left behind by modernity became, ironically, an avant-garde of post-modernity. But it's just here that we must confront our ambivalence. We lamented the loss of faith. Shall we fear its rediscovery still more? One word expresses that ambivalence. Fundamentalism. It's fundamentalism, or what's sometimes described as religious extremism or fanaticism, that makes us wonder whether religious revival might be not a refreshing breeze, but a destructive hurricane. The word was coined in America in the 1920s, in the wake of a series of pamphlets setting out the fundamentals of Christian belief. And at its simplest level, it is just that. 
a kind of common-sense defense of orthodoxy in a highly secular age, a reaction against what's seen as a liberal intelligentsia's subversion of established beliefs. What makes this a peculiarly 20th century phenomenon is that our culture has moved so far from its religious roots that it now takes almost an act of defiance to use words like revelation, truth and authority in their traditional sense. A fundamentalist refuses to let faith be relativized by history or science or sociology. Revelation stands above time and speaks to us now as clearly as it ever did. We may have changed wavelengths on our cultural radio, but we can still hear the voice of God. But fundamentalism isn't just orthodoxy. In Protestantism, for example, it's the belief not only that Scripture is true in every respect but also that, for the most part, it's to be understood literally. A fundamentalist tends to reject what's often called neo-orthodoxy, the idea that doctrine, though true and timeless, always needs to be interpreted in the light of our particular time. That, to the fundamentalist, sounds like sophistry. Instead, religious texts speak to us now directly and without interpretation, because nothing significant has changed between the moment of revelation and modern times. But now a problem arises. To hold traditional religious beliefs is one thing. To do so in a deeply secular culture is another. How do you live your faith in a world that daily seems to ignore it? Broadly speaking, there are two alternatives. One is to disengage as far as possible from society. The other is to try and change it. Orthodox Jews tended to do the first, to live in enclosed communities. But other conservative religious groups favoured the second. This has meant, especially in America, campaigns to reverse permissive legislation on abortion, homosexuality, pornography and other perceived symptoms of moral decline. It's when fundamentalism moves from a defense of doctrine into the political arena that we begin to fear a war of cultures. It's one thing to believe in absolute truth, something else to seek to legislate it in a plural culture. At this point, fundamentalism crashes headlong into liberal politics, and the stakes of the confrontation are high. But fundamentalism can go deeper still. Many religious believers experience modernity not as a process to be endured, but as an assault to be resisted. It seemed as if their most precious beliefs were being ridiculed by an intellectual elite, as if the foundations of the world were being removed. For Christians, it came in the form of secularity. For Jews, assimilation. For Muslims, westernization. And it's here that fundamentalism offers a theory not of doctrine or culture, but of history. Seen through sacred texts, present conflicts can become cosmic drama rich in images of apocalypse. 
the holy war against the infidel, the global confrontation before the end of days. And once we've reached this point, fundamentalism can, in certain circumstances, move from spiritual vision to extremism and ultimately violence. It's when it meets and merges with nationalism that we risk a terrifying return to the wars of religion. It's no accident that the most intractable conflicts of recent years, Northern Ireland, the wars and massacres of the Middle East, even the emerging rivalries of Eastern Europe, have had a religious dimension. In an age when secular ideologies have lost their power, revolutionary leaders have enlisted religious passion instead. It's an explosive combination. War becomes a holy struggle against the demonic other. Terror is sanctified. Hatred becomes a form of piety. The present moment is charged with metaphysical meaning, brushing lesser considerations aside. The complexities of conflict are resolved into a simple dualism of light against darkness. A savage catharsis will bring the promised age. For the past two centuries, we've assumed that religion, if it survived at all, would do so at the margins of society. This allowed us to leave unresolved the great question of religious coexistence. As Reinhold Niebuhr pointed out, religions create communities of love within their own boundaries, but they find relationships across the boundaries far more problematic. The three great monotheisms in particular, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, are absolute in their claims of truth and therefore tend to divide the world into believers and unbelievers. Historically, this has meant within nations a denial of rights to other confessions and between nations to holy war. Perhaps it was Judaism's historical good fortune to be deprived of political power at an early stage. Jews were used to living as a minority in exile, and this led rabbinic tradition to articulate an important series of doctrines that Judaism isn't an exclusive path to salvation that cultures that respected the rule of law couldn't be considered idolatrous, and that the ways of peace must equalize the rights of all faiths. The best tutor in religious tolerance is a situation in which you can't survive without it. As a result, Jews were religiously predisposed to welcome a liberal political order. In 1783, on the threshold of enlightenment, Moses Mendelssohn could point out that since the destruction of the Second Temple 17 centuries earlier, Judaism had lacked any connection between religion and state. Within Christianity, too, it was the gradual separation of religion and state that allowed, in the 17th and 18th centuries, a doctrine of universal rights, to emerge. Even so, religious prejudice could persist in secular forms. By the late 19th century, throughout Central and Eastern Europe, Christian anti-Judaism had become racial anti-Semitism. 
It took the Holocaust to make us realize that there is no nightmare like hatred harnessed to the absolute state. Islam's encounter with modernity took a somewhat different course. In many countries, it came as a religious and political onslaught, the impact of Western ideas on a proud and ancient civilization. It wasn't easy to integrate the two. At first, cultural accommodation seemed possible, but the new values were radically subversive of the old. The new world was less a liberation than a humiliation, so that throwing off the recent past could encompass nationalism and religious revival at the same time. The very reintegration of religion and state could seem like a return to authenticity, away from the decadent secularism of the West to the lost harmonies of a golden age. The power of Islamic fundamentalism in the late 20th century has taken us by surprise. But we recall that it was only a century ago that the development of empire and the spread of Christianity were seen as going hand in hand. It takes a great catharsis to make us recognize that other religions than our own possess integrity and rights. Our assumption that religion would always be marginal in modern societies led us to believe that human rights could rest on a secular foundation. The intolerances of religion would be resolved by the simple fact that they'd lack power. That was a fatal error in the 19th century, and still more so today. None of us now inhabits a space occupied only by fellow believers. We're at constant risk of being implicated in events far from home. Innocent shoppers or passengers on a plane are blasted out of existence by a bomb planted in a cause on which they never took sides. The effects of nuclear or chemical warfare are unrestricted by national borders. The remote has become terribly near. And our understanding of international economics and the environment completes the thought that nuclear weapons began, that no man, no country and no religion is an island in this interconnected world. Fundamentalism is the belief that timeless religious texts can be translated directly into the time-bound human situation as if nothing significant has changed. But something has changed, our capacity for destruction and the risk that conflict will harm the innocent. So long as tolerance and respect for human rights rest on a secular foundation, they'll be overridden by those who believe they're obeying a higher law. And the fact that the great universal monotheisms have not yet formally endorsed a plural world is the great unexorcised darkness at the heart of our religious situation. We may see in the future more national identities expressed in religious terms as secularism loses its persuasive power. And the great challenge of peace in the 1990s 
may well be one to which only religious leaders can rise. Behind us lies a blood-stained history of inquisitions, crusades and jihads. But beyond that lies Genesis' momentous disclosure that every human being, the unredeemed, the infidel, the other, is still the image of God. Toleration isn't, as G.K. Chesterton said, the virtue of people who don't believe anything. It's the virtue of those who believe unconditionally that rights attach to the individual as God's creation, regardless of the route he or she chooses to salvation. That is counter-fundamentalism. The belief that God has given us many universes of faith, but only one world in which to live together. It's a truth to which we now have no alternative. You've been listening to a podcast from the archives of the BBC Ruth Lectures. For more podcasts, please visit bbc.co.uk slash radio 4.